I, re- I reflected even this week when we first met together, James. I guess it's been eight years ago. Just that time of saying, wow, all of God. Just a guy whose heart beated for Christ's glory. And from that day, you guys have sent, first of all, James and Bob with their families came to minister with us. That We just saw that God brought this together. We didn't plan this out. We didn't do anything to sit down years back and say, you know, let's figure out a church that will really work. None of that. All of God. Then you guys sent the short-term teams. I think there's over 10 of those all together. They came every single time. You guys have sent summer teams. They have been choice co-workers in the gospel. And people like Daniel have said, you know what? We don't like the message, but we love them. That's really it. God has used you guys. Thank you to each and every one of you who have come, who invest your lives just this last summer again. Incredible things that God accomplished. You know the summer camps. I'll make it real brief. But the highlight for me is this. At the beginning of the camp, we welcome the atheists to camp. Basically, virtually, in our town of Kladno and Usti, we have we rank at the highest part in the Czech Republic for atheists. That's of God. And we get the darkest place in the country. Kladno and Usti, we're at the very top. About 85% of them are atheists. So we figure those that come to camp, most all of them are atheists, which they are. The neat thing is, at the beginning of camp, they want to hear nothing about the gospel. They don't want to hear about a Christ who they think is just a figment of someone's imagination who someone invented in history who doesn't really even exist. But the neat thing is after six, seven days of living with these people, watching your summer teams you've sent, watching their love in Christ, watching their patience when they messed up the English stuff in classes, the last day they said this. We asked them five questions. Two of the last questions are the most important. We said, are you interested in having Bible study after this camp? and finding out more together about the, about the Christian life. About half of those atheists said either maybe or yes. That's phenomenal. The second question is, how many of you are interested in finding out about how to have new life in Christ? And about 32 of those atheists said yes. Okay? It doesn't mean they're ready to become a Christian yet, but what it means is that God has worked through your church. God has worked in their hearts to cause them at least to begin to seek the truth of the gospel. Can you say amen to that this morning? Amen. It's all of God. We have so much to bless God for, his grace in our lives, in ministry, and the privilege of being his own, to be able to be in this world for a purpose that he would have to be fulfilled through us. And from the time when uh, Pastor James asked me a number of months ago if we'd come, if we'd be able to preach this morning, it's, it was a great honor to think, man, James, who am I, you know? But I'd love to, to speak in your church. I know you guys love the word. I know James and those that preach, preach the word. So it's truly an honor. But I was thinking about what could I bring this morning from the word? First of all, I have nothing to say, right? God's word has everything to say. But I began to reflect on the Christian life and ministry. I began to reflect on the last 20 years in ministry, just of trying to be faithful and learn of God and serve him. You know, I thought about the joys the incredible joys that it is that we have in serving Christ. Uh, the joys of being able to see God transform a life who was once saved to become one who loves Christ more than life itself. That's thrilling, isn't it? You guys know that. Seeing God transform someone's life is a tremendous thrill and honor. And then there are those other situations of seeing God miraculously answer prayer. We pray for something specific. We say, God... Please work in this person's life. Work in this situation. And God does that. And we know there's no other humanly possible way to explain what took place other than that our sovereign, great, powerful, omnipotent God 
heard our voices and answered prayer. You know, there are also the difficulties, aren't there? Ministry, serving Christ, has the joys, but also has the difficulties, has the trials, has the challenges, has the disappointments, and has the heartaches that threaten to steal our joy and weaken our faith. And I'll, I hope I'm not just speaking to myself this morning, okay? I trust not. If you've walked with Christ more than one week, I think you can say, you know, that's true. I've been there. I understand what you're saying. And we can say it this way. Great spiritual opportunity in the gospel is never without great obstacles. It never is. We have seen this to be true over and over again there in the church plant in the Czech Republic. There's been the opposition of the unbelieving world, the scoffers, as Daniel used to be, as ever used to be. Those that speak of God's name only as a curse word. You know, when I grew up, by the way, most of you know, I'm half Czech. I grew up hearing my Czech grandfather and grandmother using words I thought were a vocabulary word, but actually they're cursing God. That's part of the Czech culture. And that these people hate those that speak of Christ and seek to show Christ's love to them. That's hard. And it's been particularly worrisome the last six years in our church plant to have the wife of one of our members of the church who hates us because we love Christ. Let me say, we've tried, tried hard to love her, shoveling her snow, uh, giving her things, little encouragement gifts, visiting her in the hospital. But she hates us, has all kinds of horrible things to say about us. Why? Because we love Christ. Then there are the difficult disappointment, the heartache of those, we could call them spiritual demises in the church. You know what I'm talking about if you've ministry at all. You experience the thrill of seeing God radically, powerfully transform a life. A person then professes faith in Christ, becomes active in your church. Then, without warning, they walk away from all of it for some sinful relationship or for the love of the world. And you stand and say, God, why? What is happening in this situation? We plead, God, bring them back to repentance. Right now, there are people in the Clinton church that have done just that. And I'll tell you, it tears their heart out. You add to that the disappointment of plans that fail, prayers that seem to go unanswered, and strained ministry relationships that begin to unravel. Excuse me. There are then more personal things, people that let you down. There are circumstances that test your faith. All kinds of stuff hit us all at once. Maybe it's not particularly just ministry for you. It could be even in your situation of losing a job or financial insecurity. What I'm saying to you this morning is we know that life and ministry isn't always the joys and these times to celebrate. There's a loneliness, too, that maybe some of you even now are experiencing of longing for a life partner when you are so tired of being single for so long. You think, Lord, where are you and what are you trying to teach me in these difficult trials of my life? Maybe for some of you this morning, you're facing serious marital problems or disappointments and tough times in raising your children, and things seem to only be getting worse. For others, maybe you've been sharing the gospel with some relatives, friends, neighbors, and it seemed like the heart is as hard as stone. No response, no interest, no desire to hear, and you say, God, why? Why? My question lay out this morning is this. Where can we go for help when the great clouds of discouragement hide the sunshine of God's blessing? Where can we go? 
What can we do to find lasting encouragement when circumstances rob us of joy and the strength to endure and go on? We run to the greatest source of all joy and inner strengthening, and that is God's Word. The only place to go, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must run to the Word when the times in our Christian life, in times of serving Christ, are tough. So let's go this morning. Let's look together this morning at what I believe is one of the greatest passages of encouragement in all of the New Testament for us as we face difficulties in ministry. Thanks, Jason. Oh, that's great. Wow. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, God's Word gives us the answer, doesn't it? God's Word calls us to an incredible perspective that will meet us at our point of need. So let's go to this morning. You know our text is in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I'll start as we look together in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as you turn there, let me just say this. This passage of all passages in the Word of God has met me so many times at a time when I felt like, God, I need your help. I need you to speak to me. I need to have my heart fixed and encouraged And this has been the passage that has come so many times to bring that refreshment of heart. Let's look together at what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 12-17. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name that you've given us your word. Father, we would ask you to open our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that you meet the need of each and every heart here this morning. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage alone is a great encouragement, brothers and sisters, for every one of us who is a servant of Christ, who is a minister of the gospel. We're going to see how Paul tells us here what we need to understand to have victory regardless of the situation. Let me give you a backdrop briefly. Paul has traveled into um, northern Ephesus, the seaport city, for one express reason. Verse 12 tells us that. What is the reason he has come there? It says in verse 12, for the gospel of Christ. Okay? Paul's on a mission, first missionary journey. He goes there to share Christ. And notice with me, would you, in verse 12, how Paul then describes the incredible opportunity that faced him to share the good news. He says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Paul uses the word door to picture his outstanding evangelistic opportunity. It's a figure of speech he's using. And the original text actually describes the door for the gospel literally standing wide open. A wide open door for the gospel. 
You, now, you guys, I know you're trained in sharing the gospel. Joe, in fact, is going to be teaching a new class, I guess. Where's Joe? There you are, right? I mean, you guys understand this, the heartbeat, right? When there's an opportunity, when the heart is open here, when God takes you to a place people want to know the good news, it's like this is everything. That's what Paul sees. That's where it's come to. Yet notice now, as Paul prepared to advance with the gospel, something unexpected occurred. Verse 13, Paul states, I had, what did he say? No rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. He's got the wide open door. Yet what happens? What took place? What went wrong? Titus, his proven co-laborer in the gospel, didn't show up. He didn't come. He didn't meet him. We've got to understand something. The tremendous disappointment that faced the Apostle Paul. Let me give you a perspective here now. We write the Apostle Paul usually with a capital A. He was the Apostle, right? Was he 100% perfectly sanctified? No, he wasn't. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever sinned after becoming a Christian? Yes. Okay. Let me submit this to you this morning. I think the Apostle Paul here was dealing with something so overwhelming to himself that he was, I'm not going to say he sinned. Text doesn't say that. But he was struggling. He was struggling with what was taking place in his face. And let me show you. He says the words, I had no rest for my spirit. Here he vividly describes the anxiety that he felt in not being able to link up with Titus. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. The words no rest are from the interesting term anesis. And the word anesis is the very word the old pain reliever company gets the words anison. You guys heard the word? Do you still have anison? I don't know. My grandparents used to take anison, you know, for all their aches and pains. The pain relief. Paul says, I have no anison. I have no relief for my pain. It's clear to saying he is struggling with what he's facing from the strain and the stress that he's experiencing. The same word, anesis, no relief, was also used by the Greeks to describe a bow, a hunting bow, that was stretched so tightly it was at the breaking point ready to snap. In the vernacular, Paul is saying that he felt extreme stress, maybe even ready to snap because of this brutal situation. Many confusing thoughts must have rushed through the Apostle Paul's mind. God, you know that I'm trying to live for you. You know I'm here to serve you. You know that I'm sharing Christ with others. But Titus doesn't come. Why got this disappointment? Why this unexpected obstacle that I can't solve? So what does he do? What does the noble capital A Apostle Paul do? The text tells us. With a sense of great confusion, he takes off. Yes, he leaves Troas, and it goes on, verse 13 says, to Macedonia. He splits. And in the midst of the problem and being overwhelmed with disappointment, something absolutely amazing happens. What does he do? The Apostle Paul takes his eye off his situation, takes his eye off his disappointment, and he looks up to God. And God does an amazing work in his soul and fills the Apostle Paul's heart with indescribable joy. Verse 14 tells us that. Look with me if you would. Look at the amazing change of perspective in verse 14. Right in the face of the trial, right in the face of the disappointment, he says in verse 14, but thanks be to God. You see it? In the midst of this trial, in the midst of the confusion, he overflows with praise to God. And we say, Paul, what kind of schizophrenic change have you experienced? What are you doing? What has happened to you, brother? How can you veer off from disappointment then to this rejoicing all at once in one sentence? 
Let me tell you what happened. God showed Paul indescribable victory in the face of disappointment. In the original words in verse 14, God is in the first and emphatic position. It's all about God. The reality of God consumed his thoughts that were hijacked by discouragement and disappointment. God himself dominated his burdened heart. See, Paul's mind is flooded with the reality of one thing, the living and omnipotent God. And because of that, he breaks out in what we might call a paean of praise and rejoicing that cannot stop. In fact, he so totally veers off from describing his immediate problem of missing Titus as a co-worker, and he focuses on God himself that this is what happens. He takes forever to get back to the situation, right? You read through all of chapter 2, he's still in his digression. You read all of chapter 3, all of chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and all the way to chapter 7, verse 5, he's forgotten about the problem of Titus not showing up. He's consumed with God. Let's look there. In chapter 7, verse 5, where he gets back and he finally comments on that trial with, with Titus. He picks it up again so many chapters later. And he writes, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Same term there, by the way, unison. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And verse 6, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us, by the coming of Titus. So Titus did come later. Now let's look more closely in our very text in chapter 2 at the reasons Paul gives for rejoicing in Christ even in the face of discouragement and the overwhelming circumstances. Why? We're going to unlock why Paul can have this perspective. What are the reasons? You see, Paul is overwhelmed with the reality of what God is accomplishing in his heart and he's therefore freed from the anxiety and confusion of his circumstances. And let's look at those now together. Three things, very briefly. Three simple things. I'm sorry, guys. I tried to avoid the three-point outline. It just happens, okay, from the text. Okay? God gives the, the Apostle Paul, God gives to us this morning three assurances of victory in the gospel in the face of discouragement and depression that may weigh in our hearts. And brothers and sisters, these are for us this morning. Let me give them to you outright at the beginning. God promises us victory in the gospel that is, first of all, sure, S-U-R-E. Secondly, sweet. I'm sorry I'm not we hear sweet all the time. That's sweet. This is sweet. Sorry, guys. It's not the vernacular sweet, okay? This is God's sweetness we'll see, okay? It's sure, it's sweet, and it's sovereign. God's victory in the gospel is always that way. Let's pick it up with the first one, sure. God's victory he promises us in the ministry of the gospel is sure. Look with me again at verse 14. Would you notice how Paul speaks of the certainty of God's guiding us in victory? What does your Bible say? Follow along in verse 14. It doesn't matter what translation you have. It'll be the same. Let me quote. You check what I'm going to read. But thanks be to God who often leads us in his triumph. Did I get it? Okay, let me try again. But thanks be to God who usually leads us in his triumph in Christ. Better? It's better, but it's bad. Because what does the text say? But thanks be to God who say it, please. Always. Once more. How often? Always. Who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. Based upon God's word, God's clear promise here, God says that he will always lead you and I in victory. Always. 100% of the time. That means that as we seek to know Christ, as we seek to make him known and proclaim him, 
that there is never a time when he does not go before you. Christians, this is incredible. There's never a time when God will not go before you and lead you as you seek to make his name known. Never. He is the point man that navigates the path for you through the landmines of life and ministry that threaten to destroy you. Isn't that a great analogy? He goes ahead. He'll take the shots. He'll show you the right path to go down. In that particular trial and obstacle that you may be struggling with right now, God himself wants you to know that he is there to lead you in his victory. His wisdom, his power, his peace, his protection of your soul is yours in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is theology, but this is theology that must be driven practically. God wants us not only to say, that's right, I agree, I know the text, but God wants to say, yeah, I need to count on that. I need to live differently in light of this truth. How do we live differently? Number one, write it down, guys. Thank God. Thank God. Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us. It's not enough to say, I know, I believe. God says, thank me, praise me. That's the win. God always leads us. But let me ask this, but where? Where does God lead us in victory? Where does God lead me in that triumph? Maybe some of you this morning are thinking, you know what? You don't know, Peter, how bad it is for me on that unbelieving campus. You don't understand how they treat me, how they scoff at me, how they won't listen to me. Or you don't understand how difficult it is working for a boss in a secular workplace. Or you don't know how it is for relatives who I seek to share with who think they're saved and don't get the gospel. Look now with me what Paul says as we continue in verse 14. He says, And manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. And then what does he say? In most places? No, in every place. In every place. Fellow ambassadors of Jesus Christ, this is an incredible promise to you. That there is never a time, that there is never a place that you are without the leading of God. Never. Now, how does Paul, excuse me, how does God do that in Paul's situation? How does God bring that about? Luke records that in Luke 16. Don't look at it. I'm sorry, Acts 16. In Acts 16, Luke tells us, because while Paul was at Troas, Acts 16, just write it down, verse 8, God spoke to him in a vision. And how did God bring victory in the face of the great struggle? God guided the Apostle Paul to Macedonia so that he would bring the gospel to a whole new area. In the face of incredible discouragement, bewilderment, God shoots him off to a whole new place to bring the gospel to Macedonia. And the wonderful thing is who God miraculously saved. Who was saved there, remember? The first convert in all of Europe, Lydia. God saved Lydia and her household. They became the first converts, those who God transformed with the gospel in Europe. You see, God sovereignly designed, God divinely orchestrated a situation that looked like a crisis in order to grant victory and bring the gospel to Europe. Only God can do that, right? Paul had no plan like that. God did that. We can say that although the Apostle Paul's personal plans may have failed, God's divine plan succeeded. And that's, and what about though Paul's desire to preach the gospel to Troas? What about that? Acts 20, a little bit later in Acts, describes how God brought him back there on his third missionary journey with the gospel. God did it all. God did it all in the midst of incredible difficulty. 
So I say to you this morning, praise God for the confidence that we have that he always leads us in the gospel in every place. God does that. You know, we've seen that over and over again. I was thinking this week, you know, how God has proven himself when, th- when everything looks bad, when things are hard. And we think, God, is this chick minister even going to fly? Is there going to be anything left on the map when we're done? It's like God says, you know what, just follow me, just trust me, I'll do it. You know, there are so many situations where we have to say, God, there's not much here. You know, guys, I mean, ministry have failed you. Uh, we lost support of a huge... Um, a ministry partner, we lost coworkers. We had the large denomination, the Czech Republic, basically go liberal, at least in our church. We had to leave. And there was a situation where we lost all these things basically within a couple of months. There was one that said, God, I can't understand why all this is happening. I don't see through this stuff, but it's enough to know you're good. It's enough to know that you will lead me. And, you know, we had people... In this denomination, they met with us, and we tried to be gracious and explain that God had led us to start a church who said, if you leave our denomination, you will no longer be brothers and sisters in Christ with us. Oh, that's hard. You know, a fellow elder tells me that. And then they say, you'll never work. You'll never have a church if you don't work with a big group like us. And we had to say, you know what? You are right. You're right. It won't happen unless God desires to do that. And God has been faithful beyond what we could ever have imagined. There was a time two years ago, we got a letter from the group that where we used to have the church office. It was called the Doom Technique, Technical House, okay? We had a little place down the basement, and the air was terrible. We had people fainted. It was so bad, okay? Really, <laughs> it was really bad. A little small room, but we were thankful that we had a place to meet together. I got a letter one day from the people that ran this building, and they said, you have like two months, and you've got to leave. And I thought, this is strange, God. We're getting kicked out of this building. And I figured why. I called him and said, you know what? Is the reason because we have these homeless people that come to our church? I said, just tell me. I just need to know. She said, that's the reason. Okay? We get kicked out of our building because we're trying to minister to homeless people. And again, it's like, Lord, you know, the summer keeps coming. We need a place to meet. There was nothing. What did God do? He gave us an incredibly more beautiful, larger office, better location. We've had more opportunities to share the gospel than ever before. You know what? God is great. God opens doors when it seems like it'll never happen. And let me say to you this morning, it's the same in your life. If you'll trust Christ, if you'll follow him in your work, at school, in your neighborhood, be convinced that God has you there for his express purposes and that God will lead you there as his witness. He will lead you. He'll bless I'm not trying to discount the struggles, the challenges, they're there. But God calls you, God calls me to have the absolute certainty that he is with us, that he will use us as his representatives. That's enough. Therefore, we should always thank God that he goes before us, that he gives us victory, that first of all, we said is what? It's sure. It's sure. You can count on it. It's always that way. But it's not only sure. Let's go to the second one. God promised us as his ambassadors a victory that is sweet. It is sweet. In verse 15, we read, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Do you realize what God is telling you here in this verse? He is saying that whenever and wherever you share the gospel, that your life before him is an attractive and fragrant aroma. That's what he's trying to say to us. 
And did you notice how the Apostle Paul describes those who we share with? It's very fascinating. It's only one of the places in the New Testament that we see this. He describes the people we share the gospel with as in a process of either being saved and delivered or being destroyed. We understand the gospel. We understand that a person bows the knee to Christ, repents. There's a point in time when that faith, God regenerates that heart. But from God's perspective here, we're saying there's a process that every single person we ever share the gospel with is on two paths, either, either rejecting the gospel or moving toward accepting the gospel. Every person is in that situation, either being saved or dying spiritually. And in both situations, those who are being saved and those who are actively perishing, it says our lives to them, our lives to the living God, are a pleasing fragrance. I'll tell you, this is incredible stuff. We don't have a long time here, you know. I know the second hour and stuff like that. But if we get a hold of understanding what this is saying, it'll revolutionize, it'll radically transform the way we go about ministry. It'll change it totally. And you might say, tell me, though, how can it please God when those we share with laugh or mock or tell us that they don't believe a word that we say to them about the gospel? How can that please God? How can our lives be a sweet aroma to God when people reject his son? Can that really be victorious? And we answer because of verse 16, yes. Because verse 16 describes how our lives are to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. You see, in a marvelous and in a mysterious way, our lives as heralds of the gospel are a sweet-smelling aroma before God as we share with both the Christ-rejectors and the Christ-acceptors in both situations. You know, as the Apostle Paul penned these words, I believe that he was mindful of the familiar triumphal Roman procession as the army would return to Rome in victory. The Romans, after they defeated a conquested nation, a conquered nation, would return with their captives to Rome in an incredible and magnificent procession. You guys that love the uh, old wartime videos, uh, films, You've seen, like in New York after World War I, when they march the heroes down the streets, right? I think they call them the ticker tape parades, right? There's elation of seeing the victory that has taken place. In the Roman times, it was similar, even more festive. The bystanders would throw flowers along the path, and the priests in the procession would swing their censers of incense back and forth so that the aroma was, would waft throughout the atmosphere. To the conquerors, this sweet aroma signified victory, and life. They won. It's the conquered. It represented defeat and death. You see that? Same aroma, but two different meanings to them. And what is the most significant thing is what this meant to the greatest person of that entire procession, the Roman general who had been victorious. Those marching to their destruction and those marching to reward were both a sweet aroma. And both displayed the general's rightful rule and hard-earned triumph. He had won. He was victorious. Now, this is an encouragement in our proclamation of the gospel. You see, the ultimate issue when you proclaim Christ isn't whether a person receives or rejects the presentation of the gospel. That's really not an issue. The real concern is whether or not the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ is being manifested through our lives as we proclaim him. And we ask, how can that take place? Very simply, when we boldly and faithfully in reliance upon the Spirit of God speak forth the good news. Oh, this is good. 
You know, it's, it's sweet because we simply share that message with others. Now, I have to tell you, many, many times this particular passage has been like medicine to my soul in ministry. Many times. As we share with atheistic checks, and we know what they're going to say before they say it. We know they're going to look at us like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even have a clue. You know, because of modern biology and evolution, that's the answer. But you know what? We share the gospel. We trust Christ. And we say, God, as you heard this morning, open the hearts of those that he has chosen. We rejoice in the triumph of the gospel from God's vantage point, which means simply faithfully sharing with others who are being saved and those who are perishing. We share with them the message of life. Pastor James mentioned earlier uh, that one afternoon in our living room in the Czech Republic in Ligitse, our little village we live in, uh, we have been praying for Dan before that. It was so neat. We were sharing, talking theology that afternoon. Great time of fellowship together with Bob and James. And the doorbell rings. You know, I ran, get the door, and there's Daniel. It was just amazing, you know, to see as we opened the door, he walks in. I said, you know, come on in the living room. He sat down. It was fantastic. My heart was so much smiling, you know. It was like James and Bob go after, you know. And to hear, really, to hear them lovingly, appropriately, just share the fragrant message of the gospel with Daniel. You know, Daniel didn't get it, become a Christian that afternoon, but God used their testimony. God used every single one of you who have shared, for, shared with Daniel and Eva and others to accomplish what he desired, and it was a sweet-smelling aroma to himself. I bless God for that. I thank God for what he's done. And let me encourage you to focus on God's assessment of triumph in the gospel. Focus on how God sees it rather than how we often attempt to view it. Have great joy, have great thankfulness to God in knowing that he receives great pleasure whenever you faithfully share Christ regardless of the reaction or the response. And really, truly, our momentary challenges, our temporary heartaches are therefore of no eternal consequences, are they? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you get fired at work for sharing the gospel. It doesn't matter if people laugh at you. Why? Because it pleases our great God when we share faithfully. Well, let me ask you this morning. Do you want your life to manifest the sweet aroma of the gospel? I could say maybe do you want it to manifest even more? Simply keep proclaiming the good news to all regardless of their reaction. Just continue. You know, there were times in the Clement Church when some people said, do you really think Dan's going to become a Christian? You know, they said outright. And it's like, yeah. You know, some people share the gospel with this guy. He's got to become a Christian. You know, and it's got to be part of God's plan. Because all the faith that had been exhibited just to share and that fragrant aroma that went forth before Christ. Just continue on. You know, many of you know the joys of proclaiming the good news with those around you. And let me just say to you, press on faith. Keep at it. Don't lose heart. God is giving you victory. And others of you maybe haven't yet experienced that thrill of seeing God use you in the life of someone else. You know, it's not about manipulation. It's not about, you know, coercing or you have to do this to get somewhere. No. Let me just encourage you, know the joy of that. Know the joy of seeing God use you as a testimony of his fragrant realm of the gospel before those unbelievers. Begin to share with those around you that are unsaved that God has placed in your life, and you'll experience the thrill of seeing God lead you in his victory. Number three, briefly. A victory in the gospel is sure, it's sweet, and thoroughly it's a sovereign victory. You know, when you stop, when you think about the gospel, you think about the incredible implications 
that we have such a great responsibility that has been given to us, it can leave you feeling inadequate, can it? Like, who am I, God? Who am I that I should proclaim this message of life and death? That is exactly how the Apostle Paul felt and why he declares at the end of verse 16 of our passage, and who is adequate for these things? What's the answer? The answer is nobody. Not you and not me. No person is sufficient for such a work. Now, no one of us in our own strength qualifies for such a task of proclaiming the gospel. Not the Apostle Paul, not any one of us. Yet would you notice the thrilling words in the next chapter, verse 5 of chapter 3, how Paul answers his question about adequacy. And he declares not that we are adequate in ourselves, as considering anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from who? From God. From God. There it is. Victory in the gospel and ministry is all of God. And that's why regardless of how long you've been saved, how well you understand the gospel, how often you share it, you are not sufficient to do the job. And you never will be. But God is. Salvation is divine and sovereign work of God. He alone regenerates the heart of stone when he desires to do so. Therefore, we're to proclaim the gospel in full dependency upon Christ as our enabler. You see, understanding that the ministry God has given us is a sovereign and supernatural work will powerfully impact how we share Christ and bring clarity, watch it now, to our methods, how we share the gospel. I want this to be very practical this morning to us. Because Paul says, look in verse 17 what he says. He goes right to how we go about it. We read, for we are not like many peddling the word of God. In Paul's day, the street merchants were everywhere. They would take their wine, they'd water it down to make a bigger profit. And Paul says, we dare not do that. We don't tamper with the message. We don't change it and try to make it more palatable or acceptable to those with whom we speak. We don't do that. Why? Because the gospel, the message of salvation is fixed. The gospel is God's power for salvation and cannot be enhanced. You know the verse well in Jeremiah. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, Is not my word like a what? Like fire and like a hammer that smashes a rock. And the answer is, yes, it is. Christians, we don't need better methods. We don't need better programs in proclaiming, proclaiming the gospel. We just need to faithfully present Christ. It's enough. And you, know, you, gotta, you understand, you guys are taught well. You know what's happening around you. It's happening everywhere in the world. We're aware of evangelistic tracts, training programs, Christian literature that has gained popularity even among, yes, evangelical Christians. Yet so much of this is a man-centered gospel that bypasses the holiness of God and the problem of sin and the need for repentance. Maybe you've heard about the novel written by William Young called The Shack. Maybe some of you have read that. It reached the number one best-selling book of the year, world's bestseller. It was like just recently. And many believers had read that book, said that it has been a blessing to their lives and has changed their life. And what does it talk about? The shack presents God in the form of an overweight black African-American woman named Papa. And Christ is presented as a weak and impotent man. And the heresy of pluralism is propagated, that there are other ways to salvation apart from 
Jesus Christ. Listen now to how Young, the author, describes God's view of salvation. From God's perspective, he writes, Those who love me come from every system that exists. There are Buddhists or Mormons, Baptists or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of a Sunday morning or religious institution. I have, no desi- I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my Papa. That's blasphemy. That's heresy. And many believers saying it's changed their life. The Apostle Paul says in our text, no, we don't dare change the message. We don't proclaim some Papa. Instead, he writes in verse 17, we speak forth the gospel with sincerity. Sincerity in the original speaks of absolute purity. The original term describes that which is tested by the blazing light of the sun. There's no impurity. And early in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that sincerity was what marked his life and ministry. It was the badge he wore, that he was marked by sincerity. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, he says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. Sincerity marked his life and ministry. So we speak forth the gospel in uncompromised faithfulness to the message. The Apostle Paul understood that what he was and what he did as a minister of Jesus Christ was all because of God's sovereign grace. It had nothing to do with him. Notice in verse 17 again how Paul was gripped to the core of his being with this very reality. He says in 17, there is an, notice this, there's like an ascending scale that goes and finally reaches a crescendo at the very end of what God is doing in salvation. I'll just identify the phrase. He says, but as from God. Here he identifies the source of his message. It is from God himself. God has saved us. God has entrusted us with a message of salvation. The next phrase, he says, we speak in Christ. Here Paul gives our spiritual ID in witnessing. We're intimately identified with Jesus Christ. He is in us. We're in him. Therefore, we speak in Christ. Christian, you know Christ. You love Christ. You worship Christ. And that is the Christ you make known. And then he adds, in the sight of who? Not the unbeliever. This is in the sight of God. Here Paul reveals the audience of his proclamation. The audience of one, God himself. God is always watching. God is always the one that will reward. He will always lead us in his victory in the gospel. Fellow ambassador of Christ, I want God to minister this text to you this morning. I want, us, I want you to get a hold of this. I want you to understand that this is about why we're here in this world today. It's not about our job. It's, you know, it's not about our neighborhood, our family, or any of that stuff. It's about God's glory being revealed through us. In the midst of your disappointments, in the midst of your trials, God wants to give you victory. And God calls you this morning to fix your eyes on himself who longs to give you that victory. Maybe right now some of you are facing discouragement, disappointment, maybe even depression. Maybe you're trying to share the gospel faithfully with a relative, with a coworker, with a friend. 
And maybe they seem so hard into the gospel. Maybe you've begun to doubt that God will use you in sharing that gospel message with them. And maybe you're ready to stop. Christians, don't give up and lose faith. Don't. Whenever and wherever you share with others, God promises you that he will lead you in victory. So trust Christ and let him make it that fragrance of the gospel for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you speak to us. Oh God, may it be that we would love and treasure these truths that would it would affect the way we think. It would affect the way we minister the gospel. And it would affect the way that we worship you. God, cause us to lose sight of ourselves. Cause us to lose sight of a sense of questioning whether we're being effective or not. God, may we be lost in the wonder of the fact that you, as the eternal God of the universe, would lead us, would go before us, and promise us victory that will never fail. God, we thank you. God, we bless your name that you have made us your own, that you've given us a purpose in this world, Lord, that we would reflect Christ. God, you know the needs of each one this morning. Father, you know the hearts that are aching, the struggles, God, the challenges, those that are weary in ministry. Oh, Father, speak to them, we pray. God, may it be this week that these truths would come back to their minds over and over again. To the purpose of the end, God, that we would love you more. Father, that we would praise you more, that we would be more prepared and fitted for heaven. God, we thank you for these things for Christ's sake. Amen.